Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Rock. The case against Robert and Christian is crumbling away before our eyes. As you all know, we have reached the phase of our investigation where we examine each individual element of the state's case. What we're trying to figure out is if a closer look will make the case get stronger or expose the errors that led to a wrongful conviction. And today, we're going to continue on that journey by covering the testimony of one of the state's key witnesses. This is Season 12, Episode 48, Javi's Testimony. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro, driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost. Before I begin breaking down Javier's testimony, let me quickly recap the elements of the state's case that we've covered so far. To date, we've examined the forensics. The state presented a business card found out in the desert with Christian's DNA on it as evidence that he was at the scene. We had an expert analyze the findings, and she confirmed that it does appear to be Christian's DNA. So the prosecution gets to hold on to that one. But further examination also showed that the DNA appears to be degraded. To paraphrase the state's own expert, the degradation is what you might expect if the DNA had been outside, exposed to the elements, for a year or more. And of course, there are dozens of issues with the tire tracks and footprints, the location of the card, and the unlikelihood of anything connected to the crime actually occurring 300 yards out in the desert, and the added fact that there is unknown male DNA on Becky's sock. The bottom line is, there is no way to prove that Christian was on the crime scene at the time of the crimes, 
Business cards are by nature touched by people and then given to other people who then leave with them. The DNA shows that at some point in time, Christian touched that card. But that's all it shows, which leaves the business card as ambiguous at best. The state presented cell phone evidence suggesting that Robert and Christian were headed south on Highway 74 towards the crime scene at 7.13 p.m. A closer look now with the newly discovered sector data proves that the opposite is actually true. At 7.13 p.m., the two had driven past the Highway 74 intersection and were headed back in the direction of Christian's house. The state presented a drive test done by investigator Bodmer to prove that even though all mapping software shows a 52-minute drive time from the crime scene to the Tower 88 coverage area, he was able to do it in 38 minutes, which almost makes it in enough time for Robert not to be alibied. But now that we have the sector data, we've proven that drive test to be invalid. The state argued that Robert and Christian immediately left the scene in Christian's car seconds after lighting Becky's body on fire. We've examined every single witness statement from the neighbors, many of whom were alerted to the house fire and were headed towards the crime scene before Becky's body was ignited, and we found that not a single person reported seeing a vehicle leaving the scene that night. And most recently, we've discovered that Robert's sector data actually 100% supports and corroborates his statement he gave to police on the day after the murders. And that leads us to today. Javier Garcia was put on the stand by the state with two main purposes. One was to present evidence to the jury that Robert and Christian had made plans to go on a hike with Becky on the night of the murders. And the other was to eliminate himself as the source of the information given to Robert about Becky's body being found in a wheelbarrow. He had to be eliminated as that source so that the state could present Robert's September 18th interview as a demonstration of guilty knowledge of the crime. Now, we've already broken down Robert's September 18th interview and had it analyzed by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. One thing that is certain is that Robert in no way stated anything that demonstrates guilty knowledge of a killer. The things that he described were things that the killer wouldn't know. Only someone who had examined the crime scene the next day would know. He said that he heard there was a young female burned in a wheelbarrow. In that part, yes, the killer would know that. But in that same discussion, where he's describing what he says Javier had told him, he said that two other bodies were found inside the house, and they had been burnt so badly that investigators couldn't even tell what sex they were. That, the killer would not know. Robert perfectly described the condition of John and Vicky's bodies when fire crews excavated them from the rubble. There's no way that the killer could know exactly what shape those bodies were in. All they could know is that the bodies were burned. So Robert's statement doesn't demonstrate any guilty knowledge, period, full stop. And also, it's worth pointing out that once again, Robert's phone records corroborate what he told police. He said that he had talked to Javier multiple times that day and that Javier kept calling him back and giving him new information as he got it. When we look at the phone records, we see all those calls from Javier to Robert. 
And besides not demonstrating guilty knowledge, let's not forget what we hear at the end of that interview, where the investigator says not to spread rumors about things like a body being burned in a wheelbarrow, and we hear Robert hopefully ask if the thing he heard about the body in the wheelbarrow wasn't true. That would be the opposite of guilty knowledge. He's either an extremely good actor, or the obvious is true. He only knew that a body was burned in a wheelbarrow because that's what Javier told him. Now, if you want an example of what guilty knowledge actually sounds like, let me read you a bit of Javier's September 25th statement. Quote, She wouldn't just get out and run. She would see what would happen, to see if that person was okay, and if there was anything she could do to make them feel better or to help them. Then LeClaire says, Did she leave? Then Javier says, Yeah, apparently she got out of the house, and I don't know, I guess somebody shot her and put her in a wheel. They came back with a wheelbarrow and put her in it. That is what guilty knowledge sounds like. I'm not saying that Javier actually had guilty knowledge. In fact, after reviewing his testimony, I think that I'm starting to understand him finally. I truly believe that Javier had nothing to do with these murders, nor does he know anything about them. There was certainly a time when I thought he knew something, but that was because he kept changing his story and he seemed to be hiding something. But I don't think it has anything to do with the crime itself now that I've continued to look into this. My point here is that if you want an example of what guilty knowledge looks like, that's it. What Javier is describing are actions that were taken by the killers and Becky during the commission of the murders. Information that no one could actually know except for someone who was there at the time. Unlike what Robert said, which is what the crime scene looked like the next day when investigators were cleaning up the rubble. Now, in Javier's case, he's just speculating based on information that he had heard from someone else. And this next part of his interview, I think, reveals not only where the information came from, but why he kept changing his story and lying. Right after Javier said that the killer shot Becky and put her in a wheelbarrow, LeClaire asks, quote, How do you know that? And Javier answers, quote, From my dad. He told me. End quote. And then he quickly changes course and says, quote, Or no, that was from, that was from Tiffany. I'm about to go through the testimony, but before I start, I think it's important to understand what seems to be going on with Javier. It seems pretty obvious that Javier's dad, who was the DA's homicide investigator, shared some details with him. Javier then shared those details with Robert and, we find out later, several of his friends, but I'm sure his dad told him not to repeat what he had told him, and he definitely couldn't reveal him as the source. Javier Sr. could lose his job for sharing that kind of information, especially because Javier had a direct connection to Becky on that night. This is what we know. Javier was at the crime scene that morning, standing around with all the nosy neighbors. What we learned a few weeks ago was that they were all talking about the fact that a body was burning in a wheelbarrow. Tim Summerlee knew, Randy Paulson knew, Jim and Kendall Ellis knew, Barbara Wright knew, Carissa Farley knew, everyone knew. It wasn't a secret. That's what they were all talking about up there at the crime scene. 
So first and foremost, the idea that Javier didn't hear about it that morning is almost impossible, certainly extremely unlikely. At least the fact that there was a body burning in a wheelbarrow. But none of those people knew that it was a young female in the wheelbarrow. Only the investigators and his dad would have known that detail. Javier claims that it was Tiffany that told him about the body in the wheelbarrow while they were up at the crime scene together, but both Tiffany and Jacob were interviewed by police on the 20th. And at that point, Tiffany hadn't met Javier yet. In fact, what you're going to hear in Javier's testimony, he says that he met Tiffany and she told him about the body in the wheelbarrow the next day on the 21st. And yet on that day, during his interview, Jacob told police that he got all of his information from Javier, and he shared that he already knew at that point that Becky's body had been burned in a wheelbarrow. Here are a couple of quotes from his interview transcript. Quote, Monday, my cousin called me and told me, you know, what happened. End quote. And then here's another one. Quote, When I found out someone was burned in a wheelbarrow, I just knew it was Becky. End quote. This can't be any clearer. Javier told Jacob on Monday that a body was burned in a wheelbarrow. And Jacob is relaying that information on the 20th, and Javier hadn't met Tiffany yet at this point. So we know it's not possible for Javier to have received that information from Tiffany. And think about all of the teenager interviews we've been through. Who do they all say told them about the body in the wheelbarrow? Javier. So I think what really happened is he first answered that question truthfully to LeClaire when he said, how do you know that? And Javier said, from my dad, he told me. We haven't talked much about it here on the podcast, but it's been discussed quite a bit on social media that in 2014, Javier was asked to testify before the grand jury. That was the first time that Robert and Christian were arrested. There are several news articles relaying quotes from the then-district attorney, Zellerbach, where he says that Javier refused to testify before the grand jury unless he was granted immunity, and that Zellerbach refused to grant it. A lot has been made about Javier asking for immunity, but actually, now that I'm really looking into all this, I don't think it had anything to do with him having any involvement in the murders. Here's the full story. Zellerbach was up for re-election at the time, which is really the reason the arrests were made at all. It was a high-profile case. There wasn't enough evidence to charge Robert and Christian in 2007 when LeClaire shelved the investigation, and nothing had changed from that point until 2014 when they were arrested. But the arrest was made anyway during this election year. So Zellerbach tries to get a conviction on this high-profile case during his re-election campaign, but he didn't have much to work with. Javier Garcia Sr. was still one of his investigators at the time. According to Zellerbach, Javi's dad insisted that Javi be granted immunity if he was going to testify at the grand jury. And as I said, Zellerbach refused to grant that immunity. So after that, Javier's dad, who was still working for Zellerbach at the time, secretly filmed him stealing his opponent's campaign signs and exposed him and ended up taking him down. Zellerbach in a press conference claimed that Javier Sr. filmed him stealing the signs and exposed him in retaliation for not granting immunity to his son. And as I said, he later lost that election. So here's the thing. 
Based on what Javier says in his trial testimony, I think what Javier wanted immunity for was that he had lied to the police. Not because he was involved in the murders. As you'll see in his testimony, he admits on the stands that certain things he told police during the investigation simply weren't true. There are parts where the prosecutor presents him with transcripts of what he had said, hoping to remind him to get him to confirm some things, and in some cases, after reviewing them, he says, yes, I remember that now. But in other cases, even after reading his own words, Javier still testifies to the opposite. I think you'll agree when you read his testimony that at trial we're seeing a now grown man Javier who makes some attempts to set the record straight. But the one thing he holds on to, even though the record conflicts with what he's saying, is that he didn't know that Becky's body was found in a wheelbarrow because his dad didn't tell him details of the murders. He's willing to stand up there and throw himself under the bus, but in my opinion, he's continuing to protect his dad. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Javier's full trial testimony is posted on our website. As we go through this part here, I'm just going to break down the main points, and I'm going to be just working off of my notes, so I'm not going to be quoting the transcript directly. I'm going to give you kind of the summary Reader's Digest version. If you want to look at all the actual words, the full 127 pages are up on our website. All right, here we go. As I said, I'm just reading off of these notes, so this is kind of off the cuff as I go through the rest of Javier's testimony. I'm just going through it in order. The prosecutor, Aki, starts direct examination. At the beginning, they're just kind of establishing his relationship with Becky. And during this time, Javier actually says that he was in the friend zone. Those are his words. So this is the first example, and we're only four pages into the trial transcript, where Javier is already starting to set some records straight. Remember back when he talked to police, He said they were just friends. They both just wanted to be friends. He sort of really downplayed his desire to be in a relationship, even though all of his friends said that that's what he wanted and Becky didn't want that. Well, he admits that here on the stand, that that's true. He says that Becky worked the graveyard shift, but he doesn't recall the hours. Remember, this is 12 years after the fact when he's testifying. There's a few pages where he's shown phone records where he kind of establishes the pattern of him calling Becky and Becky calling him. He confirms on page 11 that there's no cell phone coverage in Pinion Pines. Then on the same page, things really start to get a little bit interesting because 
it seems like Aki does not expect what Javier does here. So Javier confirms that a few days before the murders that he was with Becky when Robert called her, which we knew that. But remember, in his statements to police, he was sitting right there next to her. He overheard every word. And then as the story went on, it turned into not only did Robert talk to her, but he was planning a hike, that he wanted to confirm that her parents wouldn't be home. And to LeClaire, he said that he was sitting right there and in himself heard all of those words. So at trial, Aki brings that up and he says, yes, he was with Becky when Robert called. And then on page 14, here it comes. Javier says, yes, Becky was at his house when Robert made that phone call. But then he says, Becky told him that it had been Robert on the phone after the call. So not him sitting there listening to it happen. He didn't hear anything. He says that after the call, then Becky went and told him that she had the conversation. You can tell Aki's flustered by this. So he goes and pulls up Javier's police transcript from his interview and has Javier review it, go through the part where he said he was there, where he said he heard it, where he said he heard what Robert said. And then he asks him again and Javier reviews it. He said, does that refresh your memory? Yes, it does. So do you remember being with Becky and hearing the conversation? And even after reviewing his statement, he says, no, he was not there. Aki still doesn't give up and then reads his statement to him and asks if he recalls telling LeClaire that he could hear Robert. And Javier said, yes, he does recall telling LeClaire that. So it seems like Aki got what he wanted. He went from saying he didn't recall to now Javier says, yes, I recall telling LeClaire that. The conversation continues. There's an objection by the defense, and then the judge turns and directly asks Javier if he himself heard that conversation, and Javier, clear as day, responds, no, I did not. That whole back and forth about that call goes on for a little bit, and like I said, you can tell the prosecutor is flustered. It seems like he thought... Javier would testify that he heard the call. Surely, after he showed him the transcript, he would recall it. What I find the most interesting thing, and you've got to really look at the way things are worded and the tone of the conversation, but that was the first point where I really had some serious respect for Javier. He admitted, yes, I said that. Yes, I remember saying that. And then said, he didn't use these words, but what he said was, but it was a lie. I did not hear that conversation. So as the testimony goes on, Javier starts breaking down what happened on the morning after the murders, the events that led to him finally going up to the scene. He says that that morning he was asleep and his mom woke him up to tell him that she saw in the news that there was a fire in Pinion Pines. At that point, he looked at his phone and saw that he had missed a call from Claire. So he called Claire back. And on that note, this literally just occurred to me in real time as I'm recording this. Remember, Claire said that Javier's phone was off. And I said, no, because we have the calls from Javier to Claire. I'll definitely address this on the follow-up because I'm in the middle of recording this at this point on Friday. But I seem to recall when we went over the phone records, one thing that I thought was strange was that the first thing Javier did in the morning was call Claire. 
So I want to review that. So I'm just letting you guys know that in case that's inaccurate, I'm going to review it and we'll talk about it on Friday. If maybe Claire was right, because if Javier's phone was off and we don't have Claire's phone records, we wouldn't see that Claire called him first. We would only see Javier calling Claire. And if my memory is serving me correctly, I think that's exactly what we see, that Javier woke up and called Claire, which would mean that his phone actually was off as Claire said it was. Back into the testimony. So he says that he looked at his phone and saw that he had missed a call from Claire. So he calls her back. She said that she hadn't heard from Becky either. So then at 8.48 a.m., he tries calling Becky. And again, when I say that I don't think Javier had anything to do with these crimes, the phone evidence certainly suggests and looks like someone who was going through precisely what Javier was going through. Personally, I think that he was a little upset with Becky from the night before, but then he got up in the morning and he heard something was going on and he freaked out and he was upset and he's trying to call Becky. He's calling Claire. He knew Becky had said Robert was coming, so he tries calling Robert. That's what I would expect from someone who just found out that something had happened up near where Becky lived and he hadn't heard from Becky. Then the testimony goes on, and this is where Aki's trying to establish that Javier never told Robert about the body in the wheelbarrow. So he shows him the phone records, and he shows him all the times throughout the day. There were calls before Javi went up to the crime scene, then there was calls after Javi went to the crime scene where he was calling Robert and Robert was calling him. He says that Robert told him that morning that he was planning on going on a hike but that Becky told him she'd invited a Marine to make him jealous, so he canceled. I also want to point out that if you look at Robert's police interview, he didn't say in that police interview that she told him that she invited a Marine. He just said that she said that there was another guy going to be there, and he said that he thought that might be a Marine because he knew she had dated a Marine, a fact that we confirmed later with one of Becky's sisters, where she said she had introduced her to a Marine and she was dating him at one point. But moving on from there, Aki asks Javier if he told Robert that Becky had a shrine of him. And Javier says, no, she had a collage. They had a lot of pictures of it. And maybe 25% of the pictures were Robert. He says that it wasn't, as it was described earlier, as just a shrine to Robert. But that does also explain why we saw at least one picture of Robert out by the trash can in the news reports that Becky's sister had saw when she was watching the news report that there was at least one photo of Robert that had been thrown away prior to the fire. So continuing on with this morning sequence, Javier says that after he made all his phone calls, he picked up Bo. They went to Nick Coraline's house. Then they got into Nick's truck. And then he, Nick, and Bo went to the crime scene. He says when he got there, there were first responders all over the place. There was police, fire. EMS and the driveway was taped off at the end of the driveway. So he was able to get to a point, he says, where he stood on Alpine Drive at a place where he could look up the driveway and see the garage, but he couldn't see the house because of all the trees. But he could look up all the way up the driveway and see the house. He says that he did not see a wheelbarrow there. And that's possible, but we do have crime scene photos from that location, from the street looking up the driveway at the house. And you, in fact, can see the wheelbarrow from that direction. You do have a clear line of sight to it, but it was far away. So Javier very well may not have noticed that there was a wheelbarrow up there. Continuing with the testimony, Javier says that after he did his interview with LeClaire, 
that he stayed up at the scene, he says, for an hour or two. He says that he was standing there on the road for an hour or two. He says where all of the neighbors were gathered. So again, when we're talking about where did that information come from about the wheelbarrow, all the people we've heard from that did know about the body in the wheelbarrow, that all learned about it from standing up at the crime scene talking with each other, were all standing there with Javier for what he says is an hour or two. And that list grows even bigger. If you listen to Corey Donovan's interview, he says that Alan Gerber on Monday had called him and he told him that there was a body burning in the wheelbarrow. And he says that he knew that because his dad, Alan Gerber's dad, was another person who had went up to the crime scene and someone had told him about the body burning in a wheelbarrow. But with all of that, Javier is directly asked, did you tell Robert that there was a body burning in a wheelbarrow? And here he says no. And he never comes off that. He never says that he told Robert there was a body in a wheelbarrow. But interestingly, just a couple lines later, we're down on page 41 of the transcript at this point, Javi says that he had talked to his dad that morning and he had gotten details from his dad. In fact, because we see in the phone records, he called his dad like when he was on his way back down from the mountain, that in that phone call, his dad had told him that it was a triple homicide. So if the information that Robert had that only investigators could have didn't come from Javier's dad, that would mean that he talked to his son, whose best friend had just been murdered, and told him that it was a triple homicide and didn't give him any details at all, not even basic ones like one of the bodies was found in a wheelbarrow burning outside and there was two more bodies burned up in the house. We don't know who's who because they were burned up so badly you couldn't tell the sex. I don't know what kind of details he would give him, but it seems unlikely to me if he's willing to spill the beans already that it is in fact a triple homicide that he would have given no further details. And then somehow, a couple hours later, Robert has the details that only investigators could know. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. All right, getting back to the testimony on page 43, and we're still in direct examination now. This is where Javier says very clearly that he learned about the body in the wheelbarrow from Tiffany on the 21st of September. And as I mentioned before we got into the testimony, that's not possible because Jacob told police on the 20th that Javier had told him about the wheelbarrow. So it couldn't be that Javier didn't hear about it until the next day. And that was the end of direct examination. The plan was for Javier to confirm that he overheard the plans to make the hike on the phone. That backfired on Aki because Javier didn't hear it, and he made clear that he didn't hear it. The problem there, though, is that Aki was still able to get it on the record. 
So basically, Javier testifies that Becky told him there was a plan to go on a hike, which is hearsay. So the judge tells the jury, you can't take that as confirmation that Becky made plans with Robert to go on a hike, but you can use that to assess Becky's state of mind where she was at at that time. So it still stayed in even after all that. But for practical purposes, for us, I think it's a big deal that Javier admitted here that he never heard that conversation and there was nothing about Robert wanting to make sure her parents weren't there. Christian's attorney, Dolan, comes up for cross on page 47, and the cross is very short. He goes right into Javier's interview on the 18th up at the crime scene and directs Javier to the end of the interview. He says, here, do you remember when LeClaire asked you about a red truck? And Aki immediately objected, and they ended up with a sidebar. The whole issue was they weren't allowed to raise third-party culpability. Now, what Dolan appeared to be doing is to make sure the jury knew that they had just heard testimony from Captain Williams about a red truck fleeing the scene, and Dolan is trying to point out that Javier just rode up to the scene in a red truck. But Aki isn't having it. The judge ends up not allowing it. Dolan tries to claim that I was just trying to verify how he got there because we talked about other vehicles, but the judge wasn't buying it, wouldn't let it in. We also, if you read through the sidebars, get a little bit of new information because they say that. Nick's truck was a red Dodge Ram, not a small red truck like Captain Williams had described. I have not seen anywhere in the police file where it was ever looked into what kind of truck Nick Corline had, but apparently somehow they knew it was a Dodge Ram. But that's all really Dolan does for Cross. It's real quick. He's up and down. And then Moore steps up, Robert's attorney, and he has a very long cross. By the way, if you want to read the part about Nick's truck being a Dodge Ram, That actually comes in a discussion on page 71 of the transcript. A big portion of the beginning of Moore's cross-examination is just basically recapping Javier's day. It's almost like he's trying to build a rapport. It's not aggressive at all. It's just going through, okay, so you woke up that morning because your mom woke you up, right? Okay, then you called Claire, right? Okay, just a lot of that going through his whole day. That goes on for 30 pages. The cross-examination by Moore starts on page 50, and Moore doesn't really start to make a shift where he's really digging into Javier until about page 84. And he's asking Javier about his trial prep. He asks him if he's listened to any of his interviews before testifying, and he says yes. First he says two, but it turns out three of his four interviews he had listened to. He said he listened to them all together back before what would have been the first trial. And Again, that's back when he asked for immunity. And then we find out that he was given copies. He had, it sounds like, audio and written transcript copies of all of his interviews. And he says that for the nine days leading up to his trial testimony, he reviewed all of them every single day. So I think that's important to point out again. If we go back to the whole thing about the conversation that he said he overheard and then he admitted he didn't, that wasn't a surprise. That didn't catch him off guard. He had read through those statements. He says every day for nine days, he knew what he had said, and he knew it wasn't true. Moore's basically at this point going all the way from Sunday during the day to Sunday night to Monday morning, his trip up to the crime scene, the calls to Robert, 
And then he kind of circles back around to that 6.40 p.m. call. And this is where Moore starts to get a bit aggressive. Remember, the 6.40 p.m. call is where Javier said that he was eventually said that he had been planned. Becky had invited him to come to the house. He was planning to go to the house. It was during that call at 6.40 where she said, Robert's on his way, and I don't want you to come. Never mind, because it'll be awkward. Well, Moore starts hammering away at some inconsistencies about how the call ended. The reason is because Javier testified that at the end of that call, Becky said Robert and Christian were on their way. So first things first, Moore is pointing out that in all the different versions of statements, there's a different end to that call. In some of the versions he says, and going, I'm talking about his police interviews, that he ran out of service. The call disconnected and he tried to call her later. And in some versions, they just said, goodbye, love you, hung up. And then in one version, it's the Robert and Christian are on the way. And then Moore spends a lot of time trying to pin him down to saying that Robert is supposed to be there at 7 o'clock. And I think he's doing that because of the cell phone data, because we know at 7.13, even by what they thought then at 7.13, they were still somewhere down the hill. And so there's there's some pretty crazy discussion going back and forth between the prosecution and defense about him saying he's supposed to be there at seven o'clock or something was the exact quote. And then they have a discussion about, can they say seven o'clock ish? And if they say seven o'clock, the other one objects and says, that's misstating evidence. He didn't say seven o'clock. He said seven o'clock or something. And then what does or something mean? There's just a lot of that nonsense going on. But more importantly, when you get into about page 91, we start talking about Javier's knowledge that Christian was coming with Robert. And this is something we've talked about on the podcast, too. Way back in the testimony, Javier makes clear that he and Robert and Christian were not friends. He says they went to the same school. They knew each other kind of from school, but they had never hung out outside of school. So they're not buddies. They don't hang out. They don't talk. Now that school's out, they had no relationship at all. And that's important to understand for a couple of reasons. One, as I mentioned before, if Becky said there's going to be another guy here, she wouldn't make a connection that to say that it was Javier because she doesn't know that Robert even knows who Javier is. So that's why she might say another guy instead of just saying Javier. But also what we see in Javier's September 18th interview, the morning after the murders at the crime scene, he had talked to Robert on his way up to the crime scene. And then he tells LeClaire that Robert said that he was supposed to go up for a hike and he was going to have a friend with him but he doesn't know who the friend is. And LeClaire even directly asks him, does he know who the other friend is? And he says, no. But then later the story becomes not just that Robert had told him that him and Christian were coming up, who Javier didn't really know, but then he backs it all the way up to where Becky had told him all the way back from the Wednesday or Thursday before that Becky told him that it was going to be Robert and Christian going on the hike. Even though it's clear on the 18th, he doesn't know Christian was supposed to be on the hike. And on page 95, we see, I think, more here during Cross pinpoints on really what is going on here. He doesn't put it this way. He's just trying to call Javier's credibility into question because, you know, he points out that on the 18th, he didn't know 
that Christian was the person going on the hike in that interview. But in the 25th interview, he says it was Christian. And then he asked him on the stands, how did he know it was Christian? And he says, because Becky had told him and more kind of sarcastically says, did you talk to Becky between the 18th and the 25th? Because you didn't know in the 18th, but you did know on the 25th. So how does that come from Becky when Becky's been dead since the 17th? And of course, then there's there's more objections and all that. And the question's never really answered other than Javier just maintains that he got that information from Becky. As it continues, you can read in the transcript. There's still just there's a lot of back and forth where really it's just more trying to attack Javier's credibility. But there's nothing revealing there. There's, he's just picking away at details and inconsistencies, which we've all already talked about, that there are lots of inconsistencies between Javier's statements. But one example in page 103 is he's talking about Becky getting dressed. And the point Moore's making, and I, I don't know if the jury caught it or not, is that Javier's interviews are changing as the police have more information. So what he's talking about here is what Becky was doing and what she was wearing. And on the 18th in Javier's interview, he didn't know what Becky was wearing. He just says, oh, she was taking a shower, getting ready. But then on the 25th, now when he gives that same recount, he gives details. But th this is the part that's interesting, especially for any of you that really get into linguistics. Javier says on his interview with police on the 25th, he says that while she was talking to him, she put on jeans and shoes. But he doesn't mention anything about a shirt. So for a lot of people, that may not mean a lot, but for me, it jumped out at me, and it obviously jumped out at more too, that when he gets to the crime scene, when he doesn't know anything, and he's giving the interview, he's just like, yeah, I was talking to her, she was getting dressed. Then he talks to his dad after that. And how was Becky found? We know that she was wearing jeans. We know that she was wearing tennis shoes. We don't know what kind of shirt she was wearing because it burned off. So those are two new details that there's no way Javier could have known when he gave the interview on the 18th. And, of course, he didn't provide any of those details. But then on the 25th, he says jeans and tennis shoes, which is exactly what the police knew. But I just find it interesting that he doesn't say anything about her putting a shirt on or what kind of shirt she was wearing because the investigators didn't know what kind of shirt she was wearing. And that pretty much wraps up Moore's cross-examination. At the end of cross, he goes through a list about where Javier could have heard about the information about Becky being in a wheelbarrow. He asked if he heard it from his dad, law enforcement friends of his dad, if he heard it from his mom or any of her connections with law enforcement, neighbors. He points out that it was on the news on, I think, the 19th. Uh, it was in the newspapers, news reports. Any of these ways that he could have heard about a body in a wheelbarrow. And Javier still says, no, he learned it from Tiffany on the 21st. And then he repeats, I did not learn from my dad. So next we have redirect from Aki. There's nothing groundbreaking in the redirect recross and another redirect and another recross. In fact, Dolan doesn't even come up for another recross. Aki's basically pointing out that he was grieving, he was young, he was in shock, so that's why there's inconsistencies. Moore comes back and tries to point out the inconsistencies again. Aki comes back and does the same thing. 
You can read all of that in the transcript. This episode's already plenty long enough with me rambling on. But those are the basics of Javier's testimony. And if you read through it, and and I'll direct you to page 109, and this is during redirect. But Javier, to me, explains in his testimony there why his police interviews seem so odd, why they keep changing, why he keeps getting more details that he didn't have before, why the inconsistencies, the things that made a lot of us very suspicious of him back at the beginning. He says in the transcript that during those seven days between the day after the murders in his interview on September 25th, quote, I was trying to connect the dots. I knew that I had to try to help the investigators. And I think that that really sums things up with Javier. I don't think he was hiding involvement in the crime. I don't think he was hiding any kind of guilty knowledge. And I don't think he was after Robert. I think a couple of things were going on with this young kid. Remember, this is an 18-year-old kid just out of high school who just experienced a tragedy that most of us have never and hopefully will never experience. Literally, his best friend had just been murdered in a very horrific way. He wanted answers, and he had a father who worked in law enforcement. He was young. He wanted to be helpful. And I think there was a part of young Javier that really wanted the attention and wanted some focus on him. We hear that come out in his interviews. So that's why he's talking to everyone and he's taking in information. And I don't think that in a lot of the cases that he was intentionally lying to investigators. I think that he was hearing so much. And remember, he was a heavy drug user, a heavy drinker. When I say drugs, I mean marijuana. But we heard from his friends, especially after this, He was smoking a lot more and drinking a lot more. Some said to the point where you couldn't even have a conversation with him. So he's in a daze, taking in new information. And then the police keep asking him for information. And he's relaying what he, air quote, knows at that point. Even though the reality is, he didn't actually know it firsthand. He heard it or concluded these things based on, as he says, him connecting dots from the information that he had. And I do respect the fact, as I've said a few times in this episode, that when he testified, that he did correct at least that one major error. That that big conversation, the one that so many people still cite to this day, where he overheard this conversation with Becky and Robert, he held strong and admitted he did not hear that conversation. That was just something Becky told him about after the fact. So the only big problem that I still have with Javier is that he still maintained, and I don't even know if he realized the devastating effect of it, but he still maintained that he didn't have the information about Becky's body burning in a wheelbarrow when Robert gave his interview that evening. For anyone who really looks at it, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, it clearly doesn't actually show any guilty knowledge. It's nothing. It shows knowledge of someone who had spoken to an investigator is what it showed. But that's not the way the prosecutor took it. That seems to be not the way the jury took it. And all that had to happen there is for Javier to just tell the truth. Because I don't see any other reasonable explanation other than the information Robert shared with the police that day. Just like every other thing Robert said that's corroborated by evidence. I think that everything he told them simply came from Javier 
just like Robert said it did. NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnik, Ginger Fiola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at BobRuffTruth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Thank you.